Guilt is always a great motivator. <laughs> Kidding. Uh, I do invite you guys to pray for us. We, uh, we remain very excited for what we do. I, I, to be in a place for 50 plus years and still be excited about it, I guess that's good. It always changes. And if I've had people ask me what my role is, and basically I don't do anything. Um, I do. I oversee the ministry, uh, which means I meet with a lot of people and keep thinking. Uh, but my main goal this my main goal in life right now is to figure out ways to give away what I've accumulated as far as knowing something. So I'm just trying to give it away somehow. That's why there's podcasts and radio and everything else, because like, you know, how do I give it away? That's the focus for me. Um, I had one guy say, well, you get paid for that? I said, well, yeah, I guess, I guess so. Um, but you get to that point at some point in life. I want to encourage you all to pray for us. So when I first came up here, there were like four things I was concerned about. There still are four things that I'm concerned about, and I invite you to pray for those four things. The first one is that we remain effective at what we do. I mean, we're really, we really are about knowing Christ and making him known. Uh, each one of our staff, I talk to them about that and say, that's what we're about. We're about knowing Christ and making him known. If that's not what you're about, then you don't belong here. It, it, you can belong somewhere else, but, and I'm not against you. It's just, this is what we're about. Um, it's hard sometimes to just stay really focused on what you're supposed to do um, because of all the different distractions that can come. But uh, obviously, as I've talked to you, knowing God is very important, and then living as if you know God is important. So th those are the two things we want to do, and we want to do those well. Um, second thing we want to do is be a safe place, which is getting increasingly difficult in this crazy world we live in. Um, you know, I really hope that every young person that comes up here, we have thousands in the summer, I hope when they get on a bus and go home, that they just think, wow, this is different. And a different in a way where they felt safe. They didn't feel bullied. They didn't feel sexually abused or harassed or, you know, because that's what Christ would do. And, and that's really, and the unfortunate thing is we work with people from our culture. So trying to keep this place safe is getting harder and harder because there's full of people. You know what I mean? And people are people, and they're coming from a culture that's broken. So be praying for us that somehow we have the wisdom to continue to uh, be a safe place. Physically, we're, you know, we're a certified camp, all that legal stuff we do right. And, uh, you know, financially, you get yourself audited and all that kind of good stuff. And, and, um, but mostly spiritually, emotionally, sexually, we want to be a safe place for people. Um, we want to talk about God's love and not pound the fact that if you don't know Christ, you'll be in hell one day, even though that's true. The response, really, that we want people to understand is the love of God and respond to that, if we can get that. It's not, we don't hide the fact that those who don't, aren't in God's family won't be in heaven. I mean, that's, that's for sure. But uh, what we do, we know long term, the love of God is what matters. And we want to we talk about what that means. Uh, the third thing that we try and do, and I delegate this because I'm Swedish, but is to be a fun place. Um, Swedes don't care if we have fun or not. We just like everything the same or flatlined. Um, my daughters hate when I say that because they're, they're kind of fun-loving people. In fact, uh, you know, my one daughter, she just shocks me all the time. She, when she was young, you know, she would see squirrels and go, ah! Now she was up, you know, she's married and her husband made her a hunter. And um, she sees a squirrel in my backyard. She goes, Dad, where's your gun? And she gets them, and they make stew out of it. It's like, okay, fine. What a difference. Um, 
she, you know, we really do try and do things there because the relationships are built around doing stuff together. They really are. Memories are, you know, doing stuff together. So uh, some of you guys come up with snowmobile. Those are great things you do together. You know, we have zip lines. We have all kinds of stuff. And we do that on purpose so that people can do things together and develop relationships. So we keep thinking of better ways to do that and safe ways to do that. And the last thing we, we pray is that we stay affordable. Uh, it's one thing to have a place like this and then have nobody be able to come. You know, so we, that's why if you go places, there's, there's no fee for horses, there's no fee, no extra fee for cross-country skiing. It, it's not that it doesn't cost money. It's just that when you're on these grounds, we really don't want those who have money to be distinguished from those who don't, especially kids. You know, otherwise, we've seen it. I've been in camping all my life, and I've seen where those who have money can go horseback riding and those that don't watch them and wish they had fun. So we don't want that. We want to create an atmosphere where there's none of that. In fact, any child in, in all of our history, any child that I know that didn't have the resources to come, we told them to come anyway. And uh, if we really find out even that they don't have money to put in our canteen over there, the snack place, we'll put money in there for them. Because believe it or not, those things make a difference in a kid's life uh, because they fit in uh, rather than being on the outside looking in all the time. So little things like that you can pray for very specifically. Our MBI program, which is Nicolay Bible Institute, one-year college, and it's got really a specific goal. We want the young people to know the Bible, and we want them to know how to die to themselves. I had a, a young guy that was asking me about it say, that's not a very good line. You better work on that. You know, because you really think, I mean, the Bible's okay, but you're telling me I can go spend a year learning how to die to myself? I said, that's what you need. Oh, he didn't come, but it was one of those things where I don't want that. I want to go to a college that says it's all about me. Well, this one isn't, so go somewhere else. Um, but you can pray for it. So we get the students here, and, and it's important that a lot of the people that served you this weekend were either former students or current students, and they're learning what it is to die to themselves and serve people, and that's part of what we'd like to do. So uh, information is the dining hall, if you're interested in that. Um, you, you know, pray for, as we continue to expand things, I mean, we're looking to redevelop our refuge property for um, helping foster care kids. Uh, this My Shepherd book that we're putting out, um, believe it or not, the, the whole gospel is in there. And, and we're trying to get families to read that thing, sit down and read it, and understand the importance of aligning yourself with the shepherd. And in this culture, we used to talk about fathers first, but there's so many young people who hate their fathers or have been abused by their fathers that that book's an attempt to say, how about a shepherd? Let's look at that first and understand what a shepherd does in a sheep, and then we'll have the whole gospel in there. So you can imagine if a grandpa or grandma reads it to every one of their grandchildren and their parents are around it, what they're going to keep hearing is the message of the Bible. It's Psalm 23. They're going to keep hearing it over and over and over again. And um, I just got it translated into Spanish, and we're trying to uh, get that into uh, Spanish homes, especially those who are steeped in some kind of religious background, which a lot of the Spanish culture is. Um, because they'll accept the book, and, and in the book they'll understand that it's a relationship with the shepherd that actually matters. So you can be praying for that. Uh, my only downer at this point is how expensive the book is, because, again, you can go to Kohl's and buy a picture book for kids for five bucks. Well, I'm not Kohl's, and we can't do that. And, uh, and the fun thing about that, if you look at the artistry in there, everything about that book is, is meaningful to me, because the, the illustrations were done by a young lady uh, who used to be an MBI student. And she, she was really an exceptional um, illustrator. 
But the only time she ever was asked to do it, the person literally took it from her and never paid her. And it was like, hmm. So she never wanted to do it again. And so we were talking, and I said, well, why don't I write a book and you illustrate it? And so uh, we've actually kept our agreement with her. And uh, she's now illustrating and doing things. So I'm thrilled that we were able to kickstart her a little bit. So the book has more than one meaning, actually. It's helping a young person succeed and at the same point giving. Uh, and then my daughter, who was in Honduras for a couple of years, she said, Dad, let's put it in Spanish. And uh, we did. And now we're going to send the book actually to Honduras and other places free of charge. I give to them PDF and they can print it off all they want. I, the goal is never to make money on the thing. The goal is hopefully to survive and pay for it. And, and at the same point, if we do make money, that's just going back into our scholarship fund here at camp. So that, that's all that's going to happen. So we're thrilled. If you pray for some of these projects we're working on, we're, we're constantly thinking of new ways. Uh, feel free to take the card back there, the podcast. That's a way we're getting out a bunch of different countries, people listening to you know, me ramble about something. So it, it's kind of fun to see that God uses stuff. Uh, this morning, I, I want to continue with the idea of absolutes or truth. And, and what, there's, there's certain things that, that men around the country just don't deal with well. One of them is pride. Uh, another one is, um, if I go to a group and I ask them, you know, is greed bad? Everybody would say yes. And I said, are you greedy? And there's no answer normally. Now, the, the reason there's no answer a lot of times isn't because they don't think they're greedy or they think they're greedy. It's that they don't really know what I asked. In other words, once again, we confuse things by making them too confusing. I know, that sentence made a whole lot of sense. Uh, we, we confuse things by making it overly complicated. You know, if you've never thought about what greed is and you've never really thought that you're greedy, then you've probably never dealt with it. I would contend with you, and that's not what we're talking about this morning, but I would, I would ask you, go back in the Bible, figure out what greed is, ask God if you're greedy, and if you are, confess it and get back on the right track. Now, pride is the same way. I go to any group and say, is pride evil? Oh, yeah, pride's evil. So how many of you are prideful? Well, everyone is, so they'll all put their hand halfway up. Are you really, oh, I'm not really prideful. Why? Because I know other people are more prideful. This is not a comparative scale. It's not something like I'm sort of prideful, almost prideful, a little prideful. Are you prideful? That's the question. What is prideful? Okay, well, you go in the Bible, you start looking around. It, I think it's a very simple definition for me. The world, as you know, as we've talked about, was created by God. It was about God. The whole universe revolves around God. When I make the world revolve around me, I'm prideful. That's all. That, that's a very simple definition. I say, well, I don't make the whole world. I make any of the world revolve around me. Babies, when they're born into the world, believe it or not, they're very self-centered, they're very prideful. Right? The whole world's about them. They don't even know how to communicate, so all they do is moan. Got a wet diaper, they're hungry, they scream. Action, action, get over here, take care of me. Yep, that's what they do. I shouldn't be doing that at 63. I should have learned that the world is really not revolving around me, and I should learn how to take care of me. I, I should know those things by now. So, so there's a certain progression that takes place. I was reading uh, on LinkedIn. A guy was talking about something. I was reading about it. I liked the little perspective. He said, uh, I like coffee. I drink it a lot. Because I like coffee, I have a lot of locally owned coffee shop meetings with clients, referrals, sources, and friends. No national chains for me. 
a recent series of coffee meetings with local accountants, bankers, and wealth managers uncovered an interesting perspective. All of them felt that the major contributor to small business failure was an excessive business owner's ego. A couple went as far as saying that the owners would sooner see their businesses fail than to seek help or take advice. That's interesting. You know, every one of us are, are humans, we're people, we suffer, we struggle in some area. That's really not news. It really isn't news to anybody. If you were to come to me and say, you know what, Dave, I, I got this problem. You know, if it were me talking to you, I'd, I'd say, you know what, I, I actually, my kids all make fun of me on this, but I'm actually very scared of heights. I don't like being up in the air. I don't like it. It's like, put me back down on the ground, please. Don't know why. I'm a tough guy. I remember hockey, football, all this stuff. I, I just can't get off the ground. Probably why I don't dunk a basketball. It's way up there. I you know, can't do that. So my daughter, my youngest daughter knew that, and when we first put the climbing wall up, she, you know, I tried to climb it once. I went about three feet and came down. Forget it. Then she goes, Dad, you need to try it. So she was the belayer. She had it, and I got about third of the way up because now it's my daughter. I said, okay, you're going to let me down. She goes, no. <laughs> you're not coming down until you get up there. And I'm thinking, you rat. You need to let me down. I'm your dad. I mean, my leg was shaking, and, uh, you know, she's just laughing at me. Think, Dad, get over it. The only way you're ever going to get over it is get up there and ring that bell. So get up there and ring that bell. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm the dad. You don't tell me to do that. She just laughed. I was there. She would not let me down until I went up. And I'm thinking, what? You know, I actually am afraid of heights. I'm actually glad I did it. I'm actually... I just needed someone to get in my life and say, quit moaning and get up the wall. That's what I needed. I can make all kinds of excuses saying, you know, I don't like, I don't like this, I don't like, I can do that. Or I can say, you know what, I, I hate heights. I need someone to help me when we get high like that. I, I need to do that. You know what else, I'm not, a, I'm not very good at, at, at some academic areas. Believe it or not, I write books and do all that kind of thing. I really can't spell worth a lick. I can't. I'm a teacher, and I can't spell. When I taught fifth grade, I used to tell the students right away, everybody who catches a word misspelled on the board, I'll give you double credit for whatever assignment it is. <laughs> I mean, I told them, I said, I struggle. I've struggled all my life with this. I have no idea why. I'm just not that smart, I guess. I, I struggle with spelling. I remember a college professor uh, I, I, at Wheaton, I had to take up a, a course, and it was uh, elementary. I was an elementary teacher in uh, elementary English or something. You had to pass it or you can't get out of the system. And one of it was the, the thousand most misspelled words. They gave you a test. I flunked it three times. Different words. You know, and, and finally, the professor pulled me off to the side and said, you know, Dave, um, you can't spell. I said, I know that. I told you that before we started. He goes, well, then you need to, you know, realize we're going to pass you through an education major here at Wheaton College. You need to realize you can't spell and carry a dictionary with you everywhere you go. And I said, can I tell you something, Prop? What? If you can't spell, dictionaries don't help. 
I looked up cat under K for all day long, and I couldn't find it. You know, one of the things I found, even with my students, if I can get in front of them and be vulnerable and tell them, look, here's where I struggle. This is my struggle academically. They accept me. They help me, actually. And, and I look forward to their help. Believe me, there, there were times where every fiber of my being wanted to hide the fact that I can't spell. But believe it or not, people will find out. So I just tell them I can't. You know, the other thing that's very interesting, I, I, you're saying, we're actually listening to you. You have all these problems. I am the world's worst when it comes to remembering names. I always have been. There is something, there's this little trigger in my head. I can't spell, I can't remember names. I remember faces, but I can't remember names. We run a youth club, and my wife understands that. And I will try, and then I'll call it, you know, all of a sudden she hears me call somebody Mabel. She knows I don't know their name. <laughs> but when we give awards or we do something, she'll immediately start moving toward the, the front of the room. Because I know she's going to give me the eye on what I need to do. Because she realizes, you know this kid, you just can't remember their name. <laughs> Believe it or not, when I used to teach all the time, I had a Bible in front of me. Now, I read the Bible through at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. I can quote the Bible, you know, Genesis, right through. I can do that, no problem. But when I used to stand in front of people, if you told me to find Ephesians, I couldn't do it. I don't know what happened. I couldn't do it. My wife would not let me help her alphabetize. Because, believe it or not, I have to go back to A on every one. I can help her, but if you have a letter M, I have to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, 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 okay. And then the next one's an R, and I have to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I have to go all the way back to A. Finally, she said, do you go all the way back to A every time? Doesn't everybody? Now, that doesn't mean I don't like to think and I'm not a philosopher and I don't like ideas. I mean, I like all that stuff. In fact, I, I relish the idea of thought, philosophy. I love reading philosophers. I still can't spell. I got to go back and go back. But I have found in life that if I can just tell people this is how it really is, they don't hurt me with it. They help me with it. There's nothing wrong with being helped, is there? All of you have a disability of some sort. All of you. I don't know what it is. You don't have to tell me. But if we're working together and, you know, I, I like working with young people every once in a while and I'll say, you know, uh, turn left. And they start turning right and I go, no, your other left. <laughs> I have found that there are some people that cannot tell the difference between left and right. I do know the difference on that one. But I found that there's some that can't. I don't care how many times I've told them. It's the hand you eat with, what, are you lefty or righty? He goes, well, I'm lefty, I use this hand. No, it's the other one. <clears throat> okay, don't tell this guy left and right. Those are things that I think from the time we're young, for some reason, we have it ingrained in us that we want to be needed. And people who are needed are people who have no problems. They're the ones that can solve everyone else's problems. 
when nobody here is needed. The special quality in life, if you've heard me speak at all, I say this a lot, the special quality in life is not being needed, it's being wanted. And you put too much pressure on yourself when you think you're needed. Years ago, I realized if um, something were to happen to my wife, I would probably be able to survive. Yes, I don't know how to run the, I, this is going to stereotype me, I know, but I, I don't know how to run the washing machine. But I bet you I could learn. In fact, for years I called my wife the laundry fairy. My clothes were always in my drawer. They were always folded. They were always clean. I have no idea. I never saw her do it. They're just done. I'm thinking, who needs to know how to run the machine? When you live a good life, your clothes are always in your drawer. Now, I really don't need her for that. She doesn't need me for things. The special part of life is that I want her. Not need her. God doesn't need Dave Wager for anything. doesn't need me. Here's what's special. He wants me. When I start living in a world where I start saying I am needed, I'm needed, I'm needed, then what I start doing is getting very prideful and arrogant about life because now I'm putting myself in a position where the world can't function without me. And as soon as I die, I'm going to find out, and the rest of the world will, that it functions just fine without me. When my dad died, I thought the whole world should stop. I really did. My dad was my hero. He was our pastor. He was the guy who started this ministry, everything. He was involved in like five, six different things where he was running them, and he had a heart attack and died very quickly. I remember the day of his funeral. I was ticked. I saw people going into a donut shop. I thought, what are you getting donuts for? The world should stop. I mean, I honestly said that to him, to me, not to them. I thought, what kind of fool am I? The world didn't stop. All the things he was involved in kept going. Do you mean to tell me he wasn't needed? There were so many people that came to me and said, he, he, you know, he's irreplaceable. I said, eh, not really. As far as his job? No. There's a dozen people that could pick up his job and do him, and they did. I'm one of them. I just took over here. <laughs> took over. People look at me today and say, you've been here 40 years. You know, who's going to take your place? It doesn't matter. God used a donkey to speak for him. <laughs> I'm not needed to do this. You know what is special is when you're wanted. And every one of you down deep in your heart, that's what you long for. You do not long for being needed. You long for being wanted. And wanted people don't have to pretend that everything's perfect. Because nobody's depending upon my perfection. I just want my wife to want me. I want to let her know I want her. I never want to tell her I need her, because that's a lie. That's just a lie, and I think we believe that eventually, and like the whole world's a mess again. Here's why that's so incredibly important. You see, God doesn't need me, but the one characteristic that I have towards God is that I actually need him. And so in a way, myself trying to be God 
I try and make myself needed to the world. It's kind of replacing God. And that is the most arrogant thing I personally can do, is put myself in a position where I'm trying to be God. Uh, There's a lot of factors, obviously, uh, that go into pride and power. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. We, We all know that. I look at guys, uh, I don't know if you, you, you know, I, I do enjoy watching football, but because I played football, I, I'm not so much into the paravit. I really like the science of it. I was a defensive lineman, so I like watching the defensive line and how they do things. So that's why I like watching it. No, I, I, I actually was wondering where the Packers were. I, I was looking at it going, there should be somebody there. But none of you are there, and he's running like 4,000 yards at a time. Yeah, untouched. But you know what? The, the idea, though, there's, there's people out there who say, yeah, you know what? I'm, I really got the rhythm, and I'm really bad. Nobody's going to. It's like, you know what? The truth of the matter is the next game, you're going to be like the Packers defense. We can't even figure it out. All of a sudden, one, one time I hear Aaron Rodgers going, Oh, man, the D, oh, we finally got a defense. At the end of the last game, it was like, we got no defense. Yeah. You know, one of the, the things I love about football coaches through the years, at least for me, is that they were at least honest. When I had a bad play, they would look at me and go, that's dunk. They didn't pretend. Some of the football players have a hard time with that because they're sentimental a little bit. They want to stay with Green Bay, and the GM's going to go, don't want you. Why? Didn't play up to what I wanted you to. See, that's hard to hear. Truth is, it doesn't matter where you are in life. You're not needed to go on. I'll never forget the speech that my football coach told us when we uh, started at, at Wheaton. He pulled a freshman aside and just said, look, here's what I want you to know. This is a tough game. During the course of your four years here, you are going to get injured. And when you do, I want you to know what we're going to do. We're going to drag you off the field. The referee's going to blow the whistle, and we're going to keep playing. If that bothers you, don't play here. And I thought, this is a speech to get us rah rod <laughs> You're going to get hurt, and we're going to drag you off the field? I remember how many times I was a very underweight lineman and I, was, I only played one full season. The rest of the time I was in the hospital getting fixed. I remember getting dragged off the field and the game going on. And I remember what he said. Do you know at those moments where I was standing on the sideline, a lot of times at halftime we had a doctor there, you'd get casted up if you needed at halftime and you're standing there with a you got plaster all over your uniform now from the cast, and you're watching your buddies play. It's pretty amazing. You feel pretty insignificant at that point. See, I, I should have known that from the beginning, that if I don't step out on the field, I'm not going to play anyway, and they're going to keep playing without me. My pride says, you guys need me. 
I remember uh, putting things in perspective my senior year. I, my junior year, I was voted number one player in the state of Illinois. My senior year, I was up for All-American. And I actually had two uh, professional teams contact me and say, you know, if you switch to linebacker, we'll take a look at you. And I thought, my coaches told me that. And they said, these are the teams. And, and um, it doesn't mean anything, Dave. It, it, you, you're not draftable. Um, quite honestly, you're not. Um, but this is more of a walk-on thing, possibly, you know, that you might be able to do. But really, you're out of your position. You play like a linebacker there at the defensive end, and we really, if, if they're going to look at you, I, you know, but my goal my junior year was to make the linebackers All-American, and they were. I had nowhere to go. I had to stay where I was. So I stayed there. So my senior year was going to be a great year, and I remember very first play, senior year, I came out, very first play, very first scrimmage, and I hit my, one of my best buddies on the team. And uh, my habit was to push off their face mask when I got up to just kind of in your face. And I pushed off his face mask and the tendon on my finger snapped off. I didn't think much about it, played the rest of the half, went over to the doctor, you know, when I get out, got out and said, hey, something's wrong. And my brain's on that finger to shut, but it won't shut. And he looked at me and said, you're done. I said, no, 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 no. What do you mean I'm done? I'm a senior, a for all American, all state defensive end for Wheaton College. And you have the nerve to ruin this team? Well, Mr. Prideful, we don't need you. You're done. I remember it took, uh, he gave me, he said four days we have to operate. That's going to shrink so much you'll never have complete movement of it again. Secretly behind some closed doors, there were some offers made to do something after the season, which I found interesting. I said no to those events because I really started to think about it and said, God, I, I'm not going to get into it, but when I, I was in a wheelchair as a kid, and now I'm at this stage. I said, you know, God, I think you're trying to tell me I need to switch gears, go into something that I'll really go into, and I'm not going to go into football. So I went and got the operation. I remember gathering all the guys with me and praying in my, my room and all these big guys just cheering up because we were seniors together. This is our time. And I was leaving. Remember how special that was. I felt wanted, not needed. My team was going to go on. They were going to suit up the next week and play without me. I had to sort all this through, though, because I remember standing on the sideline I got the operation. I had a wire hooking my finger to my arm up here to make sure the tenant would stay on. And I'm standing on the side, and I'm watching him play. And I look over, and I saw my jersey on some freshman kid. <laughs> I remember I went over to the coach and said, what's he wearing my jersey for? He was hitting me. I'm, I'm totally replaced. I'm totally not needed. I am, they are totally on another page. The coach saw the tears in my eyes, actually. He took the jersey right off the kid and handed it to me. I still have it in my closet. But I remember standing there throughout that whole season watching my team play, thinking, I'm not needed. They did just fine. I remember after uh, we beat Augustana, which we never beat Augustana, but we did our... Senior, my senior year without me. Maybe I was the factor. I have no idea. 
But we beat Augustana finally. I remember the guys coming off the field. I'm standing on the side. I got my jersey on this time. And they looked at me and said, we won. We did it, man. I remember looking at them saying, we didn't win. You won. I had nothing to do with it, man. I'm just standing here. I remember walking away and talking to God about that. He said, you know, God, this feeling that I have right now is like one of the worst feelings I've ever had. My buddies are out there. They're giving their lives. They're fighting. They're, and I can't do anything. God, I don't ever want to have that when I face you. I don't want to have that. I don't want to know that I face you and my uniform's still clean and I didn't participate in the victory because we will win. But I want, to, I want to be able to participate. See, what I learned was the desire, the want to participate was so much stronger than the need for me to. When we stand before God someday, I promise you, it's not going to be like God saying, well, it's really good you live because I couldn't have done my work without you. He's not going to say that. That will not be said. What will be said is, thanks, you were in a position where I could use you. Wasn't that fun? I'd win either way, with or without you, but isn't it fun to participate in it? Wasn't that a great deal? I would have loved to participate in that game against Augie and win. I would have loved to be a part of that group that was out on the field when the clock ticked down and we won. I, I wasn't. I, I realize I couldn't do anything about it, but I'm learning a lesson here myself about it. The day that I stand before God, from that point on, I had this little saying, and if you come in my office or go around my house at all, you'll see I have these little glass plates I made up that say, no regrets. Boom. It was before the no regrets conference ever started. And no matter where I look, I see it. If you go to my kid's house, you see it right above their TV, right above. I said, you know, God, I, I'm not needed in this world. I'm wanted. And what I need to do is I need to live in a way that when I do face you, I have no regrets. You're going to win anyway. I understand that. So my only regret would be that I didn't participate, that I didn't allow you to work through me. That will be my regret. It won't be a regret of, oh, no, this person, I failed, so now the whole universe is going to slip into oblivion. That's not my responsibility. That's God's responsibility. My responsibility is to do what the coach says. Sorry, I'm on this football thing, but that's my illustration for the day. My junior year, I told you my goal was to make the two linebackers All-American behind me that were behind me, and we did. You know what my role was that year? I can remember the year I got voted All-State. My goal, the coach told me right from the beginning, is your role this year is to take out all the resistance. We want those linebackers free. I looked at my coach and said, I can do that. All I got to do is run into people and take them down? I can do that. I was so irritating. I saw a guy running to block somebody, I'd be flying at him. You're not getting our linebacker. No way. So I'm down in the mud with all these 300-pounders on me. Our linebackers make the hit, and everyone's cheering them. And I get up with mud all over me and walk back to the huddle and think, Nobody's cheering me, except for the linebacker who came and patted me and said, thanks. Next play, same thing. Next play, same thing. I tell you, I spent my, my year with my face in the mud. 
That's what I did as a defensive end. You'll never find me in the Hall of Fame at Wheaton Athletics. You'll never find it there. Because they do that by statistics. There's no statistic for how many times your face was in the mud. But you know, I, I figured out by my junior year, what I had to do is listen to those coaches. That was my responsibility. I didn't have to argue their game plan with them. I didn't have to make it about me. I needed to listen to them. There were 11 of us, and 11 of us had to play together. And if we all played together, we'd be a better team. When I came to, went to the football banquet that year, and the coach was waiting there, and Brett greeted me at the door, and he put his hand down. He said, congratulations. You were voted All-State by the other coaches. I remember looking at him going, for what? For what? Did you see my statistics? And he just said, you are quite irritating. They had to figure out what to do with you because you kept taking out their blockers. Yes, Dave, the linebackers are all American. As they should be. They made every tackle. You see, what the coach needed, and I, what I understood as a young man, was the coaches needed somebody to listen to them. They had the plan. Ultimately, ultimately, the plan would work if everybody listened to it. Honestly, I did long for the people to cheer for me. That was the pride thing surfacing. But those who are in the know, the coaches, those are the guys who do the game plan. Those are the ones that voted me All-State. There's not one fan that would have voted that way. That's what shocked me. Pride is corruption that seems almost originally engrafted in our nature. It exerts itself in our first years, and without continual endeavors, it suppresses it, it influences our, uh, its influences, I don't even know what that means, influences our last, to our last, forget a word. We, we need to be people who understand, okay, God, let me practice in my life being somebody who enjoys being wanted, but never works at being needed. Enjoy the fact that God would even use you. You know what happens if you, if you live under the burden of being needed? If you live under that burden, that burden will crush you. Because you're never meant to carry that burden. You're never meant to carry it. If I were to say, please hold this 10,000 pound weight above your head, please, for a minute. You'd go, yeah, really. As soon as whatever was holding it up let loose, you'd be flattened. Why? You're not meant to do that. I am not meant to carry the burden of being needed. I'm not meant for that. I am meant to enjoy being wanted. You, uh, if you guys want your wives to feel very special, I encourage you to go home, figure out how you can make them feel wanted and not needed. Why? Because that's how we're wired. How Satan works, it is, we got to work at trying to be needed, not wanted. 
if you start acting like you need to be needed, you're going to work in a business, you're going to hide facts, you're going to do things because you want the boss to always think, man, you can't fire me because I know all this stuff. And I, You know, the opposite, if you feel wanted, you give all the information away, you make everybody around you better. Why? Because you're not needed, you're wanted. You know what I found? If you're making everybody around you better, that's job security. Mostly everybody around you says, don't fire that guy. Why? That's the guy that actually makes everybody else successful. And, and they'll even use the need word with him. We need him. It's like, no, nah, you really don't. But what you've learned is that you're not, you know, our goal is what? From the very beginning that we talked about, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, love your neighbor. So loving my neighbor means if I can make you successful, I make you successful. Yeah, but then you won't be as successful. Well, what if my success is measured by your success? I have several students who have way, way, way outpassed me in their ability to think and teach. And whenever I see them, I just give them a hug and say, man, am I proud of you. Oof, I can't even talk to you. Your vocabulary is so big. But, man, you're really, you've so surpassed me on almost everything. I'm not afraid to be excited about somebody who gets better at something than I am. You know what I found? None of them demean me. They all hug me and love me. My role is not to be the smartest guy in the room. My role is not to be the guy that nobody can touch. That's not my role. My role is to make others around me better in their life and cause them to be successful. That's my role. And anybody who excels beyond me, I have never found them to use that against me. At least if they've thought about where it came from and the process that it's been a part of. The arrogant and conceited person is ordinarily the superficial and ignorant. The man of real power and great acquirements is usually a simple and unaffected man. You know, we, we can look at, there's a lot of people that got to where they're at by stepping on other people and hurting them, and you can do that. You'll be miserable, too. Do you ever think of how miserable some of the old kings were? Let's take King Nebuchadnezzar, for example, since we used him. Think about how miserable this guy is to be. Do you realize that everything that is said in his presence needs to please him or you're dead? So when, if Nebuchadnezzar had a sane moment at all, ever, he would wonder if anything anyone said was actually true. These kings never knew if the advice that they were being given was true. And what did they do? They kept it that way. They were guarding their position of almighty. Of course everybody agrees with me. I'm almighty. If you don't, like an almighty, you die. They've never had people around them to help them. The only reason people are loyal to those kings is so they don't lose their head. And as soon as that king starts to get ousted, they'll be in the crowd ousting them, and the new king comes in, and they got to play that game all over again. There's this simplicity that takes place in people who love God and love people, and just they're truthful. And in that day, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. <laughs> it's like, no, not bowing. What, did somebody disagree with me? Excuse me. Those guys disagree with me? If you study the book of Daniel, you read it. What positions did those guys have? 
They were way up there. Why? They're the only ones that can be trusted. I'm sure this is not the first time they told a king what to think. And secretly, he probably went to his room and said, boy, those guys have nerve. Boy, I'm glad they're around. I need somebody to say something the way it is. I don't know if these other guys will do it. You know, uh, being uh, the president of a ministry and have a bunch of kids come in, every once in a while there's young people come in and, boy, they are buttering me up. They think I actually am going to decide what job they have during the summer or something like that, and they're just, they're just, and I just look at them and think, oh, please. Authenticity, being who we really are. Being those who actually are looking at every asset we have and everything that we own and thinking, what can I do? What can I do to use these for two things? What can I do to use these to show the world who God is? And what can I do to use these to help you be the person God intended you to be? What if I thought about that? What if I didn't really own my assets, but I put them in that scope? How would you live if everything you own was not yours? You know, I'm working through that in my own brain right now because that's one of the goals I have is to try and live in a way where everything I have I realize is God's. It's not mine. And to treat it that way. And to try and figure out why I have it. Why do I have this? Why do I have a home? Why do I have an income? Why do I have... You know, I know there's variable answers, and, I, and maybe it'll take me years to keep thinking through that, but the idea is, see, when I start thinking that all my assets are about me, that's the pride thing. So they're not about me. Now, is God against me having them? I don't know. You have to ask him. I'm on some boards of some ministries, and one of the questions that invariably comes up is, how much money should we have in the bank? And, I mean, I, and they will look at me because I've been in, I've been ministry for years, and my answer is always the same. I don't know. And they're so thankful that I'm on the board. <laughs> but I don't know. And then they'll look and say, that's the best you can do. Well, here's what I do know. Can I tell you what I know instead of what I don't know? If you have $5 in the bank and you trust that it, it's evil, God may want you to have 500000 in the bank. I don't know. But he never gave us resources so that we would trust them and not trust him. That's not why he gave us resources. So if you trust them, that becomes evil. Now, I understand that God is in the business of caring for his children. And some of you are going to live to be 150 years old, so probably you need a nest egg somewhere. I have no idea. But even if you have a nest egg, if you're trusting in your resources and not in God, then your nest egg's an evil thing. You see, because what we, we have the habit, prideful people, we have the habit of making everything we have about us first. This is why when, uh, whenever I teach giving, I try and stay away from, you know, just tithe and you'll be okay. It's like, no, it, there's a tendency for us to think that God only owns 10% of what we have when he owns all of what we have. I think the first 10% go to God to remind me that he owns the rest of it. I'm not against the 10%. I'm really not. I'm just saying I think that the first 10% goes, and, and it's a reminder. You know, I, I think that those who actually love God are very generous people right? because they don't trust that anyway, and they're looking for ways to use their assets. I think there's some really wise people out there who can keep multiplying assets and get them so that, I mean, that's good too, and they use them well. 
It's one of those things where I think what we have to do is constantly be on alert of what is going on in our life to create in us prideful people. In other words, people who are independent of God and making everything about us. That's what we got to watch. I'm not sure I've conquered that one yet. Because every time I think I'm on the right plane, I think God shows me something else that I, oh yeah, I'm still really about me there, aren't I? In the Bible, one of the very uh, basic truths of all the Bible is when you die, you live. When you die to yourself, you actually find life. And, and I love it because agriculture shows that. For a plant to grow, first the seed has to die. When the seed dies, then if you put together all the stuff I was talking about, you have to watch the environment the seed is in so they can grow to its maximum. You start talking about watching environment, people say you're a legalist. No, you want the seed to grow. All the farmers I know want a big yield. I mean, when I talk to them, they're planting something, they want a maximum yield. They keep the weeds out, they do this, they do this. It makes sense to me. Why? Because it's really letting the seed grow. Well, there's no growth until that seed dies. And you know what's even more intriguing? Is the only way that really you get nutrition in life is because something dies and rots and gives you the nutrition. You're on the woods there. You know, I grew up in Chicago. We used to have little lawns. Why we had lawnmowers, I don't know. You could have done with the scissors. And we used to go buy fertilizer. And the reason we did that is because we didn't live in the woods. See the woods? You got those leaves in the woods, and those, those leaves in the fall, they get full of sugar. They get so full of sugar, they turn bright colors, then they fall off, and they're just full of sugar laying down there. And they rot into the ground, and all that stuff goes back into the ground with all the dead toads and everything else down there, and it mixes in, and all that good junk, dead organic stuff gives life. I challenged my fifth graders when I used to, to teach school. I, I would challenge them. I used to love giving them biblical principles by not telling them they were from the Bible, just for fun. And I would say, you know what? In order for you to live today, something had to die. You can't live without something dying. You can't. It's the way you're made. And they would all argue with me. And I'd say, no, 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 no. You know, a plant has to die. You're going to pluck lettuce? You just killed that head of lettuce. You know, it's actually alive until you plucked it. A cow dies. You like beef? Fine. You like venison? Somebody shot that deer. It dies. Bleeds all over the place. I said, I'll give you A's in everything in class if by the end of this year you can tell me something that's nutritional for you that keeps you alive that didn't die. The principle all through nature, all through history is death brings life. Without death, there's no life. Prideful people want to live as if that's not true. We don't want to die. Well, then you'll never live. Because death to ourselves also brings life. Living to ourselves brings us death. It's funny. Flowers grow, right? They reproduce, and then their life is headed towards death. <laughs> So they can go back into the soil and give nutrients to the next flower. There's a cycle there. 
You know, I could go on and on. You could read the Bible through. I would encourage you, Bible software, whatever, type pride in there, read it through. I don't know what area in your life God is going to keep working on, but pride for men is one of them. It just shows its ugly head in all kinds of ways. And nobody here says, I want to be prideful. Nobody does that, I understand. But we struggle with it. We should struggle with it. We should be able to say, no, that's not right. That's not right. That, I just made that all about me, didn't I? That's pride. Making it about me is pride. And we got to solve that. Let's make it about God. Let's make it about others. Remember, that's what Jesus said. Two things I want you to do. Love God, love each other. That's it. Just make it about God. Make it about others. Oh, yeah, but who's going to make it about me then? That's the prideful response right there. If I don't make it about me, nobody will. Are you telling me that God won't notice that you died to yourself and you love other people and you love him and he's not going to notice that? You're not okay with what he did with your life and what he gives you? Did he give you assets so that you could be self-centered? Or did he give them to you for some other reason? That's your choice. That's my choice. What I do with them. Uh, thank you guys for letting me just pour my heart out to you in, in this. That, As I told the guys at church that asked me, I, this is an endless topic. I mean, you can just pick anything and keep talking about it forever. The idea of absolutes, the idea of truth, never going to end. Satan tries to diminish what truth is. He tries to distort. So don't let him do that. Get into the scriptures. Know the basics. Follow the basics. None of you are needed, but you're all wanted. So let's act that way. And make the people around you understand that principle too. They're not needed, but you want them. And all of a sudden, you're on a healthy plane instead of a destruction. Father, again, thank you that we could meet. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your guidance. Thank you for your word. We pray that we will be men who continually get into your word and understand your love and respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.